0: Nima College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Wednesday afternoon, September 22, 1971, A.D. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, second period of the course, continuing and concluding the study of Digging Up the Past by Sir Leonard Woolley. Okay, please, uh... All right. and before we I'll wait a few minutes see if Mr. Herschel gets here, I want to tell you a couple of books did anybody get the um, testimony of the state out of the library well it wasn't there yesterday and I thought maybe some of this class had gotten it if not it's been stolen <laughs> <laughs> Library staff can't find it. What we need is a slave to dig up who took this book. And, hi, uh, uh, it's a good book. Maybe we can recover it or get another copy later. But I did bring two books here, and I'll pass them around. You can take a look. God's Graves and Scholars by Stern. This is the one I mentioned last time. And uh, in case you think nobody has read this, because there's no names in here except two. This is a new copy. The library had one, and I think that one must have been liberated by somebody who believes in Free Enterprise too. But anyhow, <laughs> this is a new one of the same book. And uh, you won't have time to look this over very thoroughly, but the part in here that is of greatest interest is the part about the tomb of Tutankhamen, and I'll stick a, stick a clip or something in there to see the place. You can see some of these pictures here of the excavation of King Tutu tomb. This book, you must realize, is not written from the Christian standpoint of Geneva College, but all the time it's a very worthwhile book. And that's the reason, it's called John Green and and uh, since I was unable to find Jeffrey Biggs' book, The Testimony of the Spade, which shows the portrait of the earliest known inhabitant of Denmark and some other very interesting pictures in there, I got a different one. This is a new book, and this is absolutely new. Nobody ever got this out till I Just new. The date of publication of this book is 1969. Prehistoric Europe from the Stone Age to the Early Greeks. Now, this book is very interesting, well-written, well-illustrated, and written completely from an evolutionary point of view. Therefore, um, you take, it's uh, not an aspirin tablet, at least a grain of salt, and you <laughs> read this book, you don't have to follow the author's worldview. view. On the other hand, you can learn a great deal from a book of this kind. And he has many pictures here. It's, uh, it's uh, certainly not the whole story about prehistoric Europe, but it's a rather interesting book, and uh, quite a bit about these painted caves like Blackstool and Albemarle. And these are a romantic story in themselves. Okay. And...
1: Uh,
0: and uh, I expect to bring uh, from time to time, maybe not every time, we of course, but from time to time a book or two like this, to introduce you to the available literature on this subject. Now, if you are really uh, fascinated with archaeology, the place to see it the best is the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And they have a cafeteria right there in the building. You can spend you well, you could sleep or you could spend days in there. The Egyptian part goes by dynasties and has a big room for each dynasty. You go from the 16th to the 17th to the 18th to the 19th, like this. Priceless exhibits in there from Egypt, and similarly from Greece and China, and. Palestine, and other parts of the world. The Field Museum in Chicago also has a lot of good stuff in it, although not the equal of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Don't get to the wrong place when you're in New York. Did I tell you about the um, local resident from a place in Texas that went to New York um, on a trip and went home again? And he was asked what he'd seen, and he said, Well, you know, there was so much interesting stuff in the station, I didn't get out to look at the village. <laughs> so uh, another place is the Museum of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. This has also a wealth of stuff. The best in the world is the British Museum in London, and probably the next best is Louvre in Paris but those are a little bit beyond our reach, at least at the moment here. So anyhow, I've given you some ideas of places you can treat. Now, before we go on from where we stopped, one member of the class asked me some highly relevant questions just before class started. Who has any questions or anything that you are not clear about or want to talk some more about about what we had last time? All right? Let's see. When well, we were in here, um, and, and they made um... Who oh, is this? In Egypt. You will use it yourself. Yes. See, let say we got an extra here. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah.
1: It, it just me, we saw it me
0: you you think maybe deformed or something? I don't know. Uh, Tutankhamun's mummy was poorly preserved, and uh, I believe they put him back in the tomb after a while and put the fancy coffin that he had been in, in the museum in Cairo. The you were in Cairo? And Ramesses II, he's that fellow that had the super statues of himself. lived in the uh, 1200 BC. had these tremendous... Uh, stone statues of himself, put all over Egypt, about 20 or more of them. Why his hand would be like that, I don't know. Now, mummies have been preserved in Egypt um, better than anywhere in the world. This is partly due to the way they processed them. This process of embalming took them. They had two grades of it. You could get the A or the B. But the A... <laughs> took 40 days, which was described by Herodotus. This was used for important people, like kings and dukes, and so on. And the other was the much cheaper sort of a bargain deal. But anyway, uh, 40 days, they extracted the brain, uh, got a hook up through your nose and heard your brain out. Your brain is sort of soft. Well, after you're dead, this doesn't hurt.
1: But <laughs>
0: And then they removed all the internal organs, which, after washing them and cleaning them up, were put separately in urns or dust. So the body was really just a shell. And this was packed with um, nitrates and other uh, salts that would tend to dehydrate it completely of any H2O that was still in the tissues. And then they used guns, and pointments, and bombs, and the aromatic oils, and released uh, some of them at least, uh, of an uh, antibacterial nature, and then the mummy was wrapped, and wrapped, and wrapped, and wrapped in bolts of linen cloth, and finally laid right away in a tomb, in the pyramid, later in the Valley of the Kings, or some other place. And, um, The thing that has preserved these, apart from the uh, technical process of of embalming that was used, is the extremely dry air of the climate of Egypt. Egypt has uh, very low humidity, and the rainfall is, oh, a half an inch a year or something like that. It's almost negligible. And the air is extremely dry, a little like the climate of Arizona. And um, so uh, bacteria hardly have a chance in the soil of Egypt. This is the same reason why papyrus documents have survived in quantity in Egypt where they were used all over the ancient world, like in Italy and Greece and so on, but most everywhere they have perished long ago to decay, but um, in Egypt they have survived. Now, papyrus, we'll take that up later, but this has about the durability of blotting paper which is about how strong it is, and it's extremely perishable. It's a vegetable product, and um, this was preserved in Egypt. One place um, an archaeologist uh, not too many years ago, in the 1920s, I believe, was working in Egypt, and he thought he knew where to find the papyrus rolls of uh, ancient date that would have priceless information, and uh, he dug for them in the sand only to find the place where he was digging was a cemetery of sacred crocodiles. Now you realize that crocodile in Egypt is divine and has to be treated with due respect. And sacred crocodiles, which had been properly embalmed and the insides of them had been stuffed with papyrus rolls, these were discarded rolls with government archives, tax receipts, and all sorts of stuff like that, the kind of thing that uh, the Pentagon Papers maybe would correspond to, but we they uh, declassified and made it get thrown away. And so this man was, uh, actually what happened was, he, he uh, dug and, and found a crocodile and was so mad, he picked it up and whammed it on the ground like that, because he was mad, and it broke in two. And here were the rolls of papyrus on the inside, from the Greek period, That would be the last 300 years before Christ, after Alexander the Great. But here was a wealth of um, old statistical and detailed information about the life of people. You could find out many a person's paid or unpaid tax bill from these things, and a lot of other stuff like this. Census records and uh, receipts and government archives of every kind. tremendous board of stuff. The germ was inside of these um, stiff, dried-out mummy side that were um, recently interred sacred crocodiles. <laughs> That's the fire. Now, um, some Egyptian mummies have not stood the centuries too well. Tutankhamun was not well preserved in very poor condition. And uh, when they're first removed, when they None of wrappings so are first taken off, they look very lifelike. Even their color of face and so on, they're similar, quite similar to what it was in their living. But after these things are exposed to the air a while, they soon begin to deteriorate, unless they are very quickly put in a sealed glass cabinet with um, air pumped out or air conditioned on the inside. Uh, ordinary air, is such as Those around that we breathe uh, have too much humidity, and even in Egypt, for these to be preserved very long after they're unwrapped. So the ones that are still wrapped up are are presumably in a good good state, but after they're unwrapped, uh, they begin to deteriorate. Somehow we're preserved in um, in glass cases with um, with the dampness uh, dried out and pumped out, and they can put up a little tiny a of jars of sulfuric acid in the corner of the showcase like that. which has a strong affinity for water and draws all the water out of the atmosphere into the sulfuric acid. be changed about once a year, but this will keep the inside atmosphere in one of these things and bone dry. But I mentioned I saw a mummy of an Indian in a mammoth cave, thought about this last time. A glass case about the size of this desk here, and in one corner or two corners, maybe two little glass glasses about half the size of a jelly glass, for the uh, liquid in. I suppose sulfuric acid, and this uh, was to keep the moisture out of the out of the area inside of this. If any leaked in, it just draw in that, and leave the remains uh, of the, the Indians uh, high and dry in, in this case. Okay, uh, uh, the Egyptian mummy fires ought to be called morticians. It says in the book of Genesis that uh, when Jacob died, Joseph commanded the physicians, his servants, to embalm the body of his father, Jacob. Now, this wouldn't be a function of the medical profession today. The mortician takes charge after the medical profession has quit. But, yeah. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, I think this would probably be a... Maybe there were the same people that treated disease me, just I don't know. But that's the word you'll find near the end of the Book of Genesis. All right, anybody else got a question about, about anything that we've had before or what you want to bring up? All right, Mr. Harris? Um, is the
1: building that buried. That person might like
0: things like that. And the stay for the well, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, for example. Now in the first place, um, there's some doubt about the genuineness of this. There are two places that are claimed to be the tomb in which Jesus was buried and there's no real proof that either of them is really genuine. It may be that the one that is today called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, this is the one that is the most famous, is, is genuine. But the early Christians, during the first three or four hundred years, were not interested in this kind of thing at all. They thought of Christ not as dead but as living, and they thought of the living Christ having ascended to heaven, and uh, the scenes of his earthly life, the... Did not have for the early Christians the sort um, um, of it, uh, interest to that they that have for modern people and for us. And so uh, for a long time, these, these places were just neglected and forgotten. And when the Crusades came, this was in the uh, Middle Ages, you see, in the 1000s, 1100s, the Crusades, and they. The Franks and uh, other Latins from Western Europe held Jerusalem for about a hundred years and had to give it up again to the Mohammedans. The Crusades were uh, on the surface an attempt to recover the tomb of Jesus and other uh, alleged holy places from the Mohammedans. And uh, the Crusaders went around and uh, tried to put a tag or a label on every one of these the sacred spots. And they asked the local yokels around there, who uh, got a little money for being guides and telling people things, and they would say, this is the place where Jesus was buried, this is Joseph's carpenter shop, and and so forth, but uh, very likely they themselves didn't know with any real authentic knowledge of this. And so uh, most of the places that are shown to tourists, there's a a serious doubt, and, and Christian scholars, both Protestant Catholic and, and Greek Orthodox, have a serious doubts about the genuineness of a good many of these places. Now there are a few that are really beyond question. One is um, the cave of Machpelah, where Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah were buried. This is known and is genuine. There is another site, Six miles away, that some people claim is the real one, but this again is dubious, the cave of Machpelah, today on the edge of the city of Hebron, it's about to, um, oh, I believe, a, a dozen miles or so, south of Jerusalem, the cave of Machpelah, south of Bethlehem. And this is what Abraham bought from the Hittites for 400 pieces of silver, was a place to bury Sarah, his wife, when she had suddenly died. And this is um uh, regarded this genuine. For ages of time, neither Jews nor Christians could get a look see in there. I think it comes up later in the courts, but since the honor I'll tell you a little about it. Um, there was a rich Jew in the Middle Ages. Benjamin of Seville, he was insane, he had lots of money, he was a tourist, and he dived the Mohammedan guard, the Arab guard, and he lubricated their hands with palm oil. <laughs> you know what that means. And dived the guards, and they showed him, he said the ordinary visitor showed only the first case. If that isn't the right one, you go down, there were a shaft move a stone on the floor, you go down to a cave, and then there's a hole in that floor, you go down to another one underneath, double cave, a cave underneath the cave. And here in this wall, they don't show this to the visitor. They? they show this to the one who real the moolah, but anyhow, said there were six coughs, six sarcophagi, three in a row and three others opposite times. And on each one, an inscription in antique Hebrew script, but in Hebrew language, here lies the body of our father Abraham, on whom be peace. Here lies the body of our father Isaac, on whom be peace. And so on. And Benjamin described it. Now this is quite interesting. It's authentic. The trouble is, Benjamin of Tadella wrote his memoirs, and... On other things, having nothing to do with this case, he has been proved to be a liar. Therefore, <laughs> this puts a little, just a little like the guy who's been convicted three times for forgery, giving testimony in a case where somebody's indicted for a forgery before a jury. But anyhow, um, still later, the um, Prince of, Crown Prince of Germany was because of the climax about eighteen ninety something was allowed in there for a brief look see and zipped out again and didn't see much. And the Prince of Wales from England, similarly. of them not saw so much. And during World War One, when the British were fighting the Turks, they're coming up from Egypt and going north east so and under General Allenby, the battlefront had gone past this place at Hebron. And a British officer was looking for a Turkish prisoner that had escaped. And it was his fault that this laddie had escaped. So he had a kind of a vested interest in catching him again if he could. And he uh, went here. The Arab guards had fled because they were afraid of the battle. And it was unguarded and open. And he went in and. I believe the uh, skin cleared down to the second cave. Lit a little match or two and looked around. Didn't see his man and got up again and went away, only to find out that dinner that evening that he had missed the chance of a thousand years to find out what was inside the cave of Machila. And uh, the next day the Arab guards were back and has been there ever since until the Jews took it over in 1967, the Republic of Israel, and. Uh, then, well, even before the Israelis took it over, the Arabs under the King of Jordan loosened up a little bit and allowed photography, color photography, in the upper cave, but not in the lower cave, I believe. National Geographic had some excellent photos, and I'll bring them to to you when the time some of the upper cave. Now, nobody wants to take the bones of Abraham and put them in it. Case in the British Museum. This would be sacrilege from the standpoint of three religions Jewish, Mohammedan, and Christian. But I don't think you think it would be sacrilege to allow a little photographing in that case. Do you, Mr. Nance? No. I don't think so. But the Mohammedans have been um, all extremely. Um, sort of stubborn and kind of narrow-minded about this, the Israelis may be much more uh, modern in their are thinking about it in this time. Now, anybody else that's so? uh, uh, This is one place that's genuine. Another that is almost certainly genuine is the wall of uh, Joseph that Jesus drank out of at the time of, or Jacob's well, rather, at the time of when he asked the Samaritan woman for a drink near Shechem, near Mount Gerizim the Samaritan. This is still there, it still has drinkable clean water, at a depth of 23 feet, and is believed to be really genuine. And, um, of course, the retaining wall of Herod's temple is genuine, but just a few. Yeah, Mr. Knight. Well, it's uh, known to be genuine because of um, an unbroken tradition about it and no evidence to the contrary. This doesn't absolutely prove it, but uh, if there's no other well anywhere in the area that anybody could claim was Jacob's well, and they do claim that this one was, why, that would be at least uh, kind of evidence. Now, the book on Palestine, uh, written about a hundred, hundred years ago, before modern archaeology really began, but the land in the book by a million tons, and Palestine was still in return, <clears throat> a lot of interesting stuff, in. And he tells how a job this is where Peter had raised Dorcas back to life. Remember that story in the book of that? Uh, they were digging for something or other in the backyard of the British consulate there and came across a human skeleton. And the local people immediately said, this is the skeleton of Dorcas. So they gave it to a monastery of the um, Syrian Orthodox Church, I believe. Branch of Eastern Orthodox, and they buried it with honors in their church cemetery, the monastery cemetery. And Thompson, the author, with his tongue in his cheek, says in favor of the idea that these were the real bones of Dorcas, is the waiting consideration that there were no counterclaims, whatever. If this was not the skeleton of Dorcas, whose was it, prey? <laughs> now, of course, that didn't prove a thing and the, the probability that it was. Anyhow, that's what he said. Now, anybody else got a question? All right, now, um, we picked up the, the list of the One fascinating thing in Willie's book is where he tells how they reconstructed, or on paper reconstructed, a temple of Egypt of which absolutely nothing remained but a concrete base. I'm reading that and they found some little red lines on the concrete. Remember how those lines had been made? As he, as he deduced it, it's an architect's cord, that has been daubed with a somewhat sticky red paint, and it gets and then pull it up and let go, and it goes down against the stone and makes a straight line. And some of these are there where the stones had been removed and they were able to retrace it and even there were circular post holes outside, and some of them had slight fragments of decayed wood in them. And these were where the flagpoles had been with pennants on, which we know from pictures of other places were always we found outside an Egyptian temple. So, this is rather fascinating a piece of real um, Sherlock Holmes detective work that they were able with uh, apparently nothing at all almost to go on. So it's uh, logical reasoning step-by-step to figure out, uh, with a fair degree of plausibility what that temple was and what it looked like and exactly how big it was and so forth. So uh, it shows how um, everything in the soil is found almost tells a story if you know how to interpret it. Even things found on the surface. There's a (coughs) Jewish archaeologist in uh, Cincinnati, Dr. Nelson Glick, he's an expert on Surface archaeology in the kingdom of Jordan speaks Arabic. I don't know if you go there, very often use it, but he was picking up stones. They worked up to, and potsherds. They worked up to the surface. And he told a local Arab, he said, These broken pieces of pottery and these stones can tell me the story of the past. And this Arab sheikh said, And what do they say about the future? <laughs> to which uh, Rick said, only God can answer that one. All right, now, well, to determine grace absolutely, what do we need? What is necessary for the absolute determination of, of ancient grace? All right, what is it, Terry? You, know, you got to have written records that can be tied in with something somewhere else, the name people or events, or uh, sometimes something like an, an eclipse put to the center moon. Some dates have been pinned down by this. The Emperor of China once had two court astronomers beheaded because they had failed to predict an eclipse when it occurred. They had been drinking tea and playing mahjong when they should have been doing their homework. <laughs> the eclipse occurred without them having predicted it, and he said, well, those guys are absolutely no good, and we relieved them with their So Before an eclipse was mentioned, this can be figured back by astronomy. You go to the planetarium in Pittsburgh, and they can, uh, they can turn that thing backwards and show you what the sky looked like on any minute of any day. In the past, yeah, yeah, the stars don't tell any fits and they work with uh, mathematical precision. And an eclipse can be not only predicted down to the hour and minute, but it can be figured backwards to the hour and minute. So where ancient literature mentions, saying eclipse of the sun or the moon, this, can be, uh, this gives a real uh, solid and uh, very satisfactory determination of a date, especially if it can be tied in with other things. Now, um, written records. Otherwise, you have only a relative chronology. The Hittites, for a long time, we had only what's called a floating chronology. We had a list of kings, and how long each one reigned, and he died, and the next one took over. But here was this list. It, It was internally consistent. But nobody knew exactly when this whole block of dates happened, you see. When did, when do you, how do you tie the beginning of it down to something? And uh, later on, further discoveries were made, which tied this in with, uh, it gave cross ties to other countries like Egypt or Babylon or uh, some other country that enabled them to pin the whole thing down. And sometimes one discovery would take what was a floating chronology and nail it down to absolute world history so that you can say this began in 3027 B.C. or whatever day it was and continued in process at such a date, and it's nailed down by positive proof. This, of course, is ideal if you can do this, but in the absence of this, you can say that uh, this is uh, younger than this, which in turn is younger than this because this came from the topmost level, and this came from... <coughs> a level lower than that and this from still lower level so you can get a relative chronology and say which is older and which is younger but to say absolutely how old it is and when it existed this cannot be done now I don't think Willie mentions the radiocarbon method of dating this is a uh, since his book was published but this is a physical test all uh, organic remains have the um, carbon in them, all living things like carbon. which is no good for rocks. It's only good for something that was once alive, like bones, skin, hair, leather, water, charcoal, wood, straw, anything that once had life. And um, Professor Libby, former head of the Atomic Energy Commission, now professor at the Department of Liberal Physics at the University of Chicago, work this out. If any of your majors, you are physics may use Mike C. Libby's book, I'll show it to you. The library's got one book and the Bible department has two of these. But anyway, uh, uh, the theory of this is cosmic rays, high energy rays from outer space, hit a nitrogen atom in the high upper atmosphere, up in the stratosphere, head on, and change it into an atom of carbon. It has uh, carbon has ordinary carbon with at an atomic weight of twelve, that's twelve times as heavy as hydrogen. And nitrogen has an atomic weight of fourteen. And when one of these nitrogen atoms is changed to carbon, it still has the atomic weight of nitrogen, which is fourteen, but it uh, behaves chemically as carbon and can form any carbon compound, like pentasulfane uh, or. Uh, Carbon, carbon dioxide or sodium bicarbonate or whatever. And there's a certain amount of carbon-14, or this slightly radioactive form of carbon in the Earth's system. It loses its radioactivity at a fixed rate that nothing can change. You can hear it red-hot and granite grind it to powder to make a big difference. Uh, 5,000 and some years is the half-life of carbon-14 or radiocarbon after which half of these radioactive atoms have lost their radioactivity and become ordinary carbon. And you see, when an organism dies, it doesn't get any more radio carbon or any other kind of carbon from any sort. And what is already in it at the time when it dies, like, say, when you cut the tree down, or whatever, when an animal, a person died, loses its radioactivity at this rate. Well, we cut a limb off a living tree here this would give the maximum of radiocarbon a tree that was cut down now and this building was built and is now a timber in the frame of this building would have a less amount because in that hundred years a certain amount has ceased to be radioactive and something from five hundred years ago it has still less and this is Valid, uh, according to the theory of it, up to about 30,000 years, after which there is so little radiocarbon that it can scarcely be detected. This whole business has been outrageously fouled up by atomic testing that has solved up the atmosphere with modern radiocarbon. And they're having to do these tests deep underground, and it's going to be quite a while before the thing will be fully reliable again. And it's of a... Uh, Tommy testing, which is one of the bad results of it. Incidentally, in Ohio, at the Speaksboro interchange of the Ohio Turnpike, they found a couple logs of wood deep underground and made a cut through a little low hill to, um, to um, avoid going around by a detour. And uh, here, under many feet of uh, sandy soil, they found a peak block. Deep underground. It was undisturbed obviously by man. It was there from ancient times. And then this, a couple logs of wood. And this wood was, samples of it were properly collected and sent to Chicago and tested by the radiocarbon method. It takes two technicians and expensive equipment about a week, or ten days to do. And they got a date for this, of, um, uh, 8,000 and some years, and uh, plus or minus a uh, statistical deviation of uh, a couple hundred. And the scientists could not believe this, because this peak deposit had been dated by geology as 35,000 years old. So uh, something wrong. So they sent and took another set of samples and did it all over again. And this time they didn't get exactly the same answer, but it was almost the same. Still it was 8,000-something, such or minus the standard deviation. So here was a cut-down of 75% of what had been determined by historical geology. This proves, you know, that historical geologists aren't infallible. on. Anyway. <laughs> now this method is, is of great value as things um, that are not too terribly old, and the reliability of the method was established. People laughed at, uh, at uh, Doctor um, what's his name, Libby, that invented this. It upset too many scientific apple carts; too many things got to be rewritten. So they uh, more or less ignored him, or some even ridiculed him. But he is a real scholar, and he just uh, kept his cool and went on with his work. And um, today this is virtually, universally accepted. radiocarbon method of dating organic remains, and uh, you have a long list of results of tests that have been made by this method. They uh, started with things of which the age was known. Here's a wrapping of uh, an Egyptian mummy, and it is already known by historical records, when this fell lived and died. And this is tested, and they get a date by the radiocarbon method that is approximately the same, let's say, 1300 B.C. Uh, Roughly the same, almost exactly the same as what is known from historical evidence. And uh, after a number of tests of this kind, then they started testing things of which the age was not known at all. Found a sandal, a soft sandal under frozen gravel at Bering Strait Alaska. Somebody lost a shoe. And the question was, how old is this sandal? Who was it that lost the shoe? And did find out who lost shoe, but the shoe. The sandal tested out to be about 9,000 years old. One of the oldest shoes in North America. And uh, this was done by the radiocarbon method. Now this is um, quite authentic, I think, and has to be taken seriously until you get way up in the upper brackets, and then there comes an element of Let's say, uh, doubt or question mark about the uh, genuine authenticity of it. Uh, if you have to have written records, however, to get anything beyond a real, really uh, only relevant chronology, Woolley says, um, in the island of Britain, or England, there's a vast amount of material on uh, the prehistory of the island of Britain, England and Scotland and Wales. But, um, only after Julius Caesar and the Romans uh, staged the first invasion of this island does real history begin with um, genuine dates and real names of people. Before that it's um, pretty dim and you can tell what kind of people lived there, what kind of culture they had, and what they did and didn't do, and, and so forth. Though. Perhaps to some extent what kind of clothes they wore and dishes they ate out of if they used dishes. And so on, but um, uh, history with um, absolute with, with real dates, starts from 55 B.C. when the Romans under Caesar invaded. Now then, grave digging. Why is grave a especially good source of archaeological material that the archaeologists uh, jump on? Let's on this. Why would Mr. Why would this be? Well, the ancient people not only today, uh...
1: Buried the valuable kind of artifacts that are with the people, that they had
0: gold rings and things like that. But they also thought, that what you can do in this life, they do in the next life. You mm-hmm. so know, even your common people, they buried their own faces and that's the normal life. Now, it isn't the body or the skeleton that's buried in the grave that's important, really. It's important to the person who was buried there, maybe. But uh, to the archaeologist, <laughs> it's the things that we're putting there with them. And uh, often uh, valuable objects. Of course, you realize that, um, well, why is it? This is question 23, that uh, graves often fail to provide what the archaeologist is looking for. Mr. Thompson, you have any ideas on this? This is 23. Hey, the, uh, um, well, uh, this. Um, would affect some things that would be buried, but uh, how about objects of gold or silver? Well, that's uh, Somebody's been there before. Somebody's been to it. And this is often true. Uh, you see, everybody knows that important people like kings or government officials or rich men have been valuable objects buried in their graves. Well, naturally, there would be uh, some unscrupulous members of the community who would not hesitate to dig a grave up and get these things? Sometimes they'd cut a finger off a corpse in order to get the gold rings on it. So it couldn't go off any other way. But uh, grave robbing was a common racket in ancient times. In Egypt, until fairly recently, there were two families that had secrets of getting into ancient tombs that were family secrets that they wouldn't let anybody else in on. This was their uh, sort of patented lifestyle. But anyhow, uh, they would just lend these priceless objects out, just occasionally, a few at a time, and uh, that's where they stretched it out, and, and it supported the family from generation to generation. Cash getting a little low, we'll go back to our secret graves and bring out a couple more gold cups or something. And uh, this uh, kept them in money. This is, of course, an illegal today in Egypt, and anybody doing this or caught doing it would face the a the death penalty. But uh, it was quite a racket while it lasted. I can't imagine an easier way to announce your family and send your kids to Geneva than, uh, to be able to get the gold and silver when you want it out of somebody's graveyard. But anyway, uh, Often, uh, the gold and silver have been removed and less valuable objects remain. However, the less valuable objects, this means less valuable from a cash standpoint, or might be very valuable from an archaeological standpoint, and what they would tell about those people and their background. And you might maybe learn more from um, some weapons or a knife or something, or a cup that wasn't made of gold or silver, and you could out of these things that had uh, gems or, or really valuable things of precious metal. Now uh, soil, water, and atmosphere in Egypt has had little effect. In countries where the air is damper and the rainfall greater, wood soon perishes. Early Chaldeans where Abraham once lived since barely excavated, and this will come to you later. Things made of wood have crumbled to a spider web, just a little a silvery film. It goes completely to pieces if you touch it. Anything made of iron has left only a trace of red rust or oxide. Bronze has corroded usually quite badly, and even silver has corroded. And mm-hmm. gold, gold is chemically inactive. It does not react to weak acids in the soil. And gold, removed from the tombs of Erech, dusted off with a whisk lemon and toothbrush, and it shines bright and pretty like when it was put there three thousand five hundred years and more ago. It's uh, amazing. Uh, gold is keeps uh, its metallic character uh, in them. Um, so well, this has an interesting bearing on the question, has Noah's Ark been discovered? There's a constant reporting of this in the religious press, that uh, Noah's Ark, the remains of it on Mount Ararat, have been discovered, and if we just get the Turkish government to uh, be reasoned and nice about things, we could get uh, the authentic uh, information. Dr. Dackert, any of you remember him? Paul St. He was a character. He's not here anymore. But anyhow... Uh, we invited Mrs. Lucille Henry to go out horseback riding with him. She declined. <laughs> but anyway, um, he went on a trip to Europe and came back from Paris with uh, something wrapped up in a Kleenex, which he told me was a fragment of the wood of Noah's Ark that had been given him by a Frenchman who claimed to have chopped this out of the Ark on Mount Ararat, And he wanted me, if you please, to look at my riddle. To send this to Professor Libby at the University of Chicago to have it tested by the radiocarbon method. And I said, Dr. Backers, they'll never test it for you. Your sample wasn't collected according to the approved technique to keep it from present day radioactive contamination. And this ties up expensive equipment and the time of two technicians for days and days. And, and they got more than they can do already, and they'll never test it. Well, I'm from Missouri as to whether that was really from Noah's Ark. Uh, archaeologists are extremely dubious about this. Uh, that anything from as long ago as the time of Noah may have would, could have survived. To which the proponents of the Noah's Ark theory have already made the answer, which isn't easy to brush off either. They say, look here, it's been frozen. All these thousands of years, that's the way up above the frost line, it's frozen around more than 1,600, 16, feet above sea level. Three times as high as high peak in, Chicago, in, in New Denver, in Colorado. And this is why it hasn't decayed or decomposed. Well, All I can say is I have an open mind and I'm willing to wait and see. Yeah, Mr. Ashley. Um, um, like the, the the yeah. On how do you well, when they get down to what is considered archaeological death, they quit working with picks and shovels and they start working with really blades and toothbrushes, very slowly and very gently, and get a thing like that out. For uh, to get the soil out that it was in that preserves the shape of it. An archaeologist might work days just on that one thing, very carefully. Like a dentist working on your teeth, you know. He didn't take a freaking shovel, it just feels like it was. And uh, this is how, and some parts of that wood had survived. Other parts they could they could figure from the space in the soil where it had been and reconstruct it, you see, out of modern wood. But uh, Pretty authentic, I think. And that's rather, rather amazing that they could do that. And um, bone and uh, shell, like uh, like uh, oyster shell and that kind of thing, survives pretty well. Mother of pearl survives pretty well. Wood very poorly, and the uh, most metals very poorly, but gold does survive well. Some bronze does it hasn't been too dense. But this is, you see, uh, In addition to being a a, a science, archaeology is also a skill. Uh, You could have somebody that had been through dental school, and learned all about dentistry, but had never sold a tooth to anybody. He wouldn't have the skill. He'd just have the science. You could learn a book about how to swim, but you have to jump in the water and learn how to swim by getting wet. And archaeology is not only a science, but also a very highly developed technical stuff, is people just have to get the feeling of it and the, 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 uh, the real uh, practice, you know, to do this without just absolutely ruining everything. Would you like to be an archaeologist? There's a lot of it left to do. You know what the main hitch is? Money. And the next main hitch is politics, Seven government, They're suspicious, that so they call you an American star. See? I uh, would call you an imperialist this
1: uh. <laughs> stuff. All right, we'll stop here to let off.